Okay, I'm the warning coordination meteorologist down in Norman at the Storm Prediction Center. We are to tornadoes like the National Hurricane Center is in, in Miami to, uh, to hurricanes. And I've been in my current job there about three years now, but I've been at SPC almost 15 years forecasting uh, severe thunderstorms, tornadoes, uh, large hail, high winds, fire weather, winter weather. You name the hazard, we've, we've probably tried to uh, anticipate it in advance. Uh, it's a wonderful job. Uh, it's, it's a little more work than I thought when I put in for this job. But, uh, but I enjoy it immensely. I think it's one of the best jobs in the National Weather Service. Uh, I also work shift on occasion and fill in uh, as a forecaster, uh, which is a little tough if you haven't done it for a while. You kind of have to spin back up. And uh, I've got a few shifts coming up uh, in June and May. Figures the hardest months of the year for, for storms. And as Ken said, I, I've been putting together an annual review of what I call my meteorological memories for uh, the past seven years. It started here uh, with the Omaha chapter of the American Meteorological Society, and they kept asking me back. So I'd put my memories again every year for the past, uh, since 2003, I believe. And when Ken asked me to come to this event, I was very interested. And he said, yeah, but I want you to do the top 10 memories of the decade. And I'm like, wow, that's a challenge. Uh, but I had seven years under my belt, so I could go back through those seven-year talks and pull out the events that I thought were the most significant. But I still had to work on the first part of the decade when I didn't uh, do the talk, 2000, 2001, and 2002. And you made me work, because I had to go back and rebuild and, and choose some events that I thought were the ones that should meet the criteria for making this talk. Uh, so we'll see them here today. I grew up in Vermont um, where I actually fell in love with the weather because of snowstorms. And I used to think, wow, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could forecast a snowstorm a day or two in advance, know that school was going to be canceled, I could skip out on the homework. And uh, I was a horrible forecaster. Uh, luckily, I graduated high school, but I still had that interest in weather. Uh, got my degree at Linden State College, uh, in, which is a Vermont school. I was interested in all types of weather, though. I, I, as I got into meteorology, tropical weather was fascinating. Uh, I never really saw severe storms that often in Vermont, but I, I would see the pictures in, in WeatherWise or watch the news and just be fascinated by, uh, by severe weather in the plains. And so I consider myself an equal opportunity weather geek. Uh, and I'm not too committed to any one type of fascinating weather, uh, but all types. And so hopefully I've made the talk uh, cover uh, a variety of those events and hopefully you'll like that. The, all of these pictures I just put at the beginning of the talk here are pictures I've taken uh, just over the past few years, mostly Oklahoma, but a, the first rainbow picture was in Vermont. I think that's uh, uh, New Mexico. That was a dust storm in Oklahoma. That's not Oklahoma. Um, neither is that one. That one is. It's a pot. Anyone know what the name of that cloud is at the top? Peleus, Peleus cloud at the top of the building cumulus. And that was in New Hampshire, sunset. And I think that was a chase in Oklahoma. So, well, that was the title slide. We're going to go over the decade. We'll start in 2000. We'll go to 2009. Uh, basically, four or five slides for each one of these events. I'll try to describe them in terms of what, what happened and, and where and why and uh, give you a brief uh, summary of the impacts. Uh, and... Uh, that was my funny slide here. So here's some front porch forecasters, which we all are at one time or another if you're watching the weather move in. And he says, oh, rain squalls are coming. My knee's acting up. And he's got a bump on his knee there. And then the middle guy says, I'd like, I say it's more like a blizzard judging by my hand. 
And then the last guy's got Mr. Potato Head. He says, well, something's happening. There goes my head. So, <laughs> so this is kind of like a day at SPC. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. In the year 2000, uh, the western United States especially uh, had a long-term drought uh, that resulted in a wildfire season that would, up to that point in time uh, had not been seen in, in quite a while. And so this, this was a summer, mostly a summer event, uh, but it extended into the fall. Some of the wildfires burning for three months straight and consuming enormous amounts of vacreage in, in the Rockies and all the way into the southwest U.S. And we'll go over this event here. And what basically we call it sort of dumb man meteorology, what you need for, uh, for fire weather is uh, hot conditions and very dry conditions. And up here is a, a graph of the uh, number of days above 90 degrees, or the above average uh, number of days above 90. You can see 10, 15, 20 degrees uh, between June and August where they had 90 plus readings uh, above the long-term mean there in the western U.S. So very hot, even in the south, a, a lot of hot weather. And then this graph here shows the amount of area over the continental United States that is considered uh, very dry to extreme drought. And this would be an area that areas of the United States would be very moist. And you can see the year here, as we go into 2000, how the moisture just dropped off and the area that was considered in drought or extreme drought really increased. And it was mostly this part of the country that bore the brunt of that problem. In terms of how bad it was, well, it was the worst in terms of the number of acres consumed by wildfire in over 30 years. This goes back to 1970, and we have uh, seven and a half million acres burned in, uh, in the year 2000 uh, by over 90,000 wildfires. So not only is this a problem with respect to just acreage and, and, and burning, but it's a problem with air quality. It's a problem with uh, aviation as far as keeping planes out of, out of the smoky areas. And it just taxes the resources of this country as far as trying to commit uh, firefighters and, and National Guard and uh, the other support that's needed to, to, uh, to fight the fires. One of the earlier fires of the season, it, it, the season got going early in May um, in parts of uh, New Mexico here. You may remember this fire is uh, the Cerro Grande fire, which began actually as a controlled burn, but then that's an oxymoron because it quickly got out of control. And you can kind of see in this graphic looping through here the amount of coverage of this fire over a very short period of time. You may remember Los Alamos Lab uh, was threatened by fire in this event. And what do they keep in Los Alamos that would be not good to have burned over? Anybody know? Well, radioactive material, so you want to, you know, probably get that out of the way of the fire. Here's the smoke plume on, on satellite imagery. This is the panhandle of Oklahoma and the, the broad plume of smoke from the fire. Uh, pretty remarkable. As the summer went along, the fires just got bigger and they lasted longer and they consumed more acreage. The worst were in the Rockies. These are the ten largest fires of the of the uh, season in 2000. Many of these were started by lightning strikes, and lightning plays a crucial role in wildfire and uh, fire mitigation and forecasting. Uh, you often get storms in the, in the west, and even here we saw the, the LP supercell this morning. Very low precipitation, if any, falls to the surface. So the lightning comes out of a dry thunderstorm, and the winds associated with that storm can cause that, that fire to spread. And this is an example, this is a close-up of the uh, Idaho-Montana border here with all these little hot spots located by satellite in the smoke. And then this loop down here, I think, was showing the plume, and that's what it looked like. They're called pyrocumulus clouds when they're associated with uh, fires. I'm loop again. Oh, what did I do? Oh, here we go. 
This was in Idaho, one of the fires that burning out of control there. Uh, well, darn it, I'm going way too fast here. Hmm. Sorry about that. The uh, playground equipment here that shows up in this image is not, glo this is not due to global warming. Um, <laughs> although maybe someday. Um, wildfire, that was the New Mexico fire, and then the smoke on the satellite image here, the western U.S. This picture you've probably seen, this is a very famous picture. If you, if you uh, Google search for uh, uh, Idaho wildfire or wildfires in 2000, you'll get hundreds of these, and it is in the public domain. It was taken by a, uh, a firefighter who was on assignment in Idaho um, during this summer, and he's actually, he was actually from Alaska, but he was, on, he was a government employee on government time, took that picture, and it is in the public domain. So in summary, this was a, a long-term drought, uh, aggravated the situation. Uh, the most annual acreage burned uh, in over 30 years, and the resources to fight these fires were definitely stretched to the limit. 2001 comes along, and the event for this year was one that uh, won't be forgotten for a long time in parts of the Gulf Coast region, and that was Tropical Storm Allison. Allison wasn't all that impressive as a tropical storm over the Gulf of Mexico in early June, but the storm moved inland near Houston and then essentially stalled and did a little bit of a loop and dropped just tremendous amounts of rainfall in downtown Houston. My loops are going fast here. Here was what the uh, Hurricane Center products looked like back then. This area of the Texas-Louisiana coast under a tropical storm warning. And the storm made landfall, but then look what it did up here. It moved in across Houston area, moved north a little ways and said, eh, I think I, think I'll, I like the Gulf better. So it's coming back, and then it went back out over the Gulf. And you see it's not, you know, when you see satellite pictures of hurricanes, and we'll see a few more in this talk, um, you know, not all that impressive, but the core of this system sat right over Houston and just gave them tremendous amounts. And here you'll see this, the, the radar loop. Here's the circulation. Comes ashore near Freeport. This is the surf there. And you'll see there's just this tiny little area that comes across Houston and just sits there. Uh, there's the rainfall. Couldn't be in a worse place. I mean, look at it, bullseye, right in the middle of Houston, three feet of rain in just a couple days. They can't deal with that. Storm moved on back into the Gulf and then made a second landfall in Louisiana where they had more flooding. 41 fatalities from this event, the costliest tropical storm in U.S. history. Of course, there have been costlier hurricanes, and we'll see that, but uh, Allison won't be forgotten. I believe it's the they've retired the name, too, for and they don't do that very often. Some summary slides, this is downtown Houston. Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> and then the flooding here, and, and even in the, uh, the suburbs around, around the area. Well, I said that already. Unbelievable rainfall, and the, ex the damage extended well beyond Texas. On to 2002, uh, now we're getting into tornado events. This is the Veterans Day tornado outbreak, one of the greatest tornado outbreaks in terms of sheer number of events uh, to occur late in the year. We see a peak in the tornado season, usually in the springtime, May, June, is the annual peak in tornado activity, but we often see a second peak, a second season, not quite as extensive or uh, as great in magnitude, but it usually comes along late in the year when we have conditions in the atmosphere similar to what we have in the spring. In other words, you've got, you still have available warmth and moisture for thunderstorms, and you're beginning to get back into the westerly winds uh, and, the, and the stronger storm systems that we see during the winter months, and it's that second peak in which this, uh, this event occurred. Here was the setup. At the upper levels of the atmosphere, very strong trough of uh, low pressure, deep trough with strong winds in here, wind speeds 80 to, uh, 80 to 90 knot, 
uh, coming across uh, Texas, Oklahoma. And then in the low levels, a lot of moisture, plenty of uh, low-level low moisture, 60 dew points all the way up into Michigan. That's pretty unusual in November. And then uh, 70 dew points further south over the lower Mississippi Valley. So the stage is set up here uh, for a pretty significant outbreak. These aren't exactly synced, but you can see during the day there was plenty of heating. This is the visible satellite imagery. And then the evolution of those storms as the, the, the system moved east, a cold front. And then there was plenty of development even at well ahead of the cold front. Uh, during the afternoon. And this, this event, uh, kind of uncharacteristic for a lot of uh, severe weather, but uh, this continued right on through the night. Oh, going a little fast here, sorry. Um, through the night, uh, this, is, this is late evening, you still had massive severe weather uh, going on along the line here, but then these cellular storms with tornadoes on the ground in three different locations, uh, basically from the Gulf all the way to the Great Lakes. And then the next morning here, you can see that all the watches that were issued and all the reports dotted in there. These are the long track tornadoes, F3 down in here, F2, F3 here in Tennessee, a number of F2s. There's an F4 here, which is uh, Van Wert, Ohio. And you probably see in a picture here just a minute that it'll look somewhat familiar. Um, and then there all the warnings were issued. So one of the biggest severe weather days on record, 80 tornadoes reported and over 1,000 warnings issued. In summary, I don't know why these slides take a while. This was in Ohio. Not much left here of this, uh, this building. Um, that was one of the tornadoes in Ohio that struck the theater, sort of like what we're in today. It was, you know, just a uh, 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 regular movie theater here. And luckily, the gentleman who ran this theater heard the warning in enough time. The theater was filled with people, and the parking lot obviously filled with cars. And he got the word, we got to get the people out of here. There's a tornado coming right at us. And he, he got the people out and uh, knew what to do, and they were saved. I think this is in ten Tennessee or Kentucky on that one. Second F4 to hit the Van Wert, Ohio area. 36 fatalities, unfortunately, 286 injuries. So that was 2000. So those, um, those three, 2000, 2001, 2002, were the ones I had to fill in for, for Ken's talk here today. Now we're going to go on to 2003. And this is a controversial selection. And again, I've called the talk My Meteorological Memory, so I can pick whatever I want. But uh, <laughs> this one I had to sort of defend, because there were other terrestrial events during 2003 that certainly warrant mention. And I will make an honorable mention of one of those. But I wanted to do the solar storms. I did them during uh, the talk I did for the Omaha office here in 2003. And there's such a thing as space weather, and there actually is a space weather prediction center. And it does affect terrestrial weather. I mean, uh, we have effects from these flares that uh, can range from shutting down aviation traffic across the polar regions because of high radiation or lack of communication. Uh, if it gets really bad, entire electrical grids can be shut down by solar flares. Now, we haven't seen an active sun like we saw here in 2003 in, a, in many years. In fact, it was going into the declining stage in terms of the sunspot cycle. But we're beginning to come back out of that, that cycle. If you're a ham radio operator, you probably know what I mean. But these were just remarkable storms. They compared to a blizzard in July. This is from the SOHO satellite image at the end of October, showing one of the uh, coronal mass ejections from, from the sun. I'll see if I can run that again. Watch it, the, uh, the flare just explodes out. And then all of this is noise from the cosmic radiation just being fired, luckily not directly at the, at the Earth. It was a little oblique to the Earth. We wouldn't really want to have one of these. This is a close-up of the surface. Is that? flare goes off, and again, all the, the noise from, from the radiation. 
Uh, and then as that area uh, rotated around the back of the sun uh, at the beginning of November of 2003, you can see one more flare that goes off in this image here, one more coronal mass ejection that takes place right at the edge. And estimates are that if, if this happened to be here facing us, we would be dealing with some problems in terms of electrical problems on the grid or maybe having to uh, watch out where we're flying in high altitudes due to cosmic radiation. So the sun has, uh, has an impact, as we all know, on weather, but when it does this, it's uh, a little bit uh, dangerous for us. So there were, again, like I said, other events. Uh, what, what this also does is the, the flares uh, result in tremendous auroras well south of the, from what they're normally seeing. The aurora borealis is actually visible most of the winter in the northern areas, but when you have uh, solar radiation or solar ejections like we saw in 2003, the, uh, the aurora borealis can come well south, and maybe some of you saw that here in, in uh, Nebraska. And then these are the aviation uh, jetways across the polar region that need to be uh, kept abreast of what's going on with the, the sun. And there's the uh, honorable mention event, but I got a lot of severe weather. This was one week severe weather report in May, and you can't blame that on the sun because all these flares occurred in October. That was earlier in the year. And that was indeed a remarkable May, uh, a record May in terms of the sheer number of tornado events. Um, but I just like the, the solar videos, so I threw those in there. Where's the banner? The sunspot they ne that a lot of these ejections originated from was the largest in 13 years. They compared it to a blizzard in July, and, uh, and there's the honorable mention for those folks who gave me a hard time. Okay, on to 2004, and uh, originally I had here uh, hurricanes, floods, and tornadoes all under the same banner for 2004, but in the interest of time the other day, I was getting nervous that this talk might go a little long. I had to take out the floods and, and tornadoes that were associated with these uh, uh, tropical storms that affected mostly Florida and the eastern United States uh, in late 2004. So let's take a look at some of those. This was... Uh, Florida's furiously full calendar of, of tropical events, just a record number of hurricanes affecting the state from the middle of August right on through September. It seemed like not a week went by where they weren't facing uh, another large tropical storm or hurricane approaching the state that they would have to deal with. So the names on some of these, well, and if you were, <laughs> they had a, a, a CBS miniseries called Category 6, Days of Destruction, you know, well, it's kind of cheesy, but... Um, Life actually imitated art in, in this case uh, during this, this year. These are the four, the four biggies here. Uh, Charlie, Francis, Ivan, Jean. And if you, I don't know if you can see. Here's Florida, the peninsula. You can't quite see it there, uh, the edge here. Ivan, a Category 3, affected the western panhandle. The, the other, these other three, two of which were major hurricanes at landfall, um, moved right across Florida. And this is a really neat graphic from the Palm Beach Post showing the, the strikes. Three strikes, three strikes, and it, that's like uh, spring training, right? I mean, that's the area they do it there, and uh, we're not talking baseball. It was not a good time to be in central Florida uh, September of 2004. And then Ivan out here. I've got a really neat video coming up. Uh, we'll take a look at the Charlie loop here real quick. Well, okay. Some of these don't want to run. Hmm. It's always a danger when you put videos in your presentation. I'm going to go down here and start it. So there's the radar loop. 
for Charlie. Charlie was actually a pretty compact storm, but it, it strengthened dramatically just before landfall at Fort Myers. Went right across Orlando and across the peninsula. And I got a video from Jim Eds. I saw him, uh, I saw this video online, and I asked if I could get the high-resolution version of it. And he sent me this. He was in Punta Gorda, Florida. two-part video, and the second part will come up in just a moment. Dad, compare what here. you're seeing right now to the second part. Yeah, yeah, you might want to get out of here. Okay, now part two is just a few minutes later. It's getting a little worse. Still hasn't gotten out of there. That's roof, I think. It's roof in the building here. Watch this sign. Yeah, watch this. There goes the roof. he was pretty much ground zero for Charlie. Francis comes along just a couple weeks later. This is the loop of Francis going through, hits the Florida East Coast, goes across. Lots of flooding with Francis as it went up into the Appalachian Mountains here. Extensive flooding in the mountains. This is Ivan. Ivan was pretty intense. It was a nighttime, early morning landfall right around uh, Mobile Bay. Um, some pretty good storm surge with that, uh, and you'll see some pictures of that, and also caused extensive flooding. Ivan was really interesting. There were a lot of tornadoes with the circulation during the next day up here in the, in the Piedmont, and the circulation moved off the east coast and then reformed as a circulation that moved back into the Gulf um, a few weeks later, and they named it Ivan again. And there was a huge debate as to whether it was the same storm. And uh, Max Mayfield, who was the director of the Hurricane Center at the time, said if you did a DNA analysis, it would be that it, it's definitely related to Ivan. So we'll call it the same storm. Uh, and then finally, Gene took a very similar track to, uh, to Francis here. You imagine dealing, that's like a, just a week two later, another one. And the more flooding in the Appalachians with that one. So it was amazing to see this activity in, in September that year. This was uh, Ivan Damage, uh, Gulf Shores, Mississippi, I believe. This is near uh, after Francis and Brevard. And then these are before and after images. Look at this barrier, re barrier island here, gone, just gone after Charlie. Pensacola, Florida, before and after pictures here can't really see too much. We're going to do a few more of those with, uh, with Katrina. So this was just an unbelievably active tropical season in the September of 2004. Uh, unfortunately, quite a few fatalities with all of these storms and significant damage. And also offshore of this country, uh, thousands dead due to the flooding uh, with these some of these storms in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. All right, on to Katrina. Uh, Katrina in 2005, nobody's going to argue was the most significant event of the year, and I've also think, uh, as far as my list goes for the decade, this is the uh, 
this is the weather event of the decade and will not soon be forgotten and is still being, we're still recovering from that. This is the composite track of Katrina. It was similar to the storms we saw just in 2004 where it first got going off of southeast Florida here and moved across um, as a category one and then just explosively deepened in the, in the Gulf of Mexico with the warm water in the Gulf and then moved on shore uh, near Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Let's see if I can go back to using a... So, let's see, is this a loop? Yeah, it goes back here. Look at that eye, just huge eye and just incredibly intense. I'll run it one more time. This is over a couple of days. This was Sunday and then Monday landfall. One more. So at 902 millibars, Katrina was, let's see if I can get this next picture here, 902 millibars on Sunday, August 28th in the Gulf of Mexico. This is a visible satellite picture showing the eye. And all eyes now are on the Gulf Coast at this time, knowing that this is a Category 5 storm. And the last Category 5 of that magnitude was Camille uh, in 1969 and hit very close to the same location. Um, but it was a lot less populated back then, too, along that coast. Let's look at the, the diameter. Oh, that's probably a 50, 60 mile, maybe even 80 mile diameter eye. So first landfall, Plaquemines Parish, just before dawn. A second landfall near Biloxi. And these areas sustained tremendous storm surge. We heard, you know, New Orleans initially was spared, and we had some pretty significant wind damage. And it was really the, uh, the back side of the circulation that brought um, Lake Pontchartrain, which is sits just north of New Orleans, New Orleans under sea level, and it brought the waters of Pontchartrain through the levees and flooded because those winds pushed, well, before landfall, the wind pushed all the water into Pontchartrain, and then after landfall, the wind just pushed it right off and into the city. And then east of there, I've got a couple images I put together for uh, east of there. This is uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, before landfall. If you've been to Biloxi, there are a number of uh, casinos, but they can't be on land. Whoever came up with that idea. I mean, yeah, let's put them in the Gulf, because that's where the hurricanes hit. So they're all sitting out here in the Gulf, instead of being maybe in a safer place, and got all these casinos on barges. So that's before, that's after. Oh, look, now the casino's on land. Storm surge went well inland here, about almost a mile inland, this storm surge in, uh, in Biloxi. Perhaps ground zero for the storm surge was past Christian, Mississippi, which also was famous for the number of fatalities in, Buell, in uh, Camille in 1969. In this image, past Christian before, the gulf is right here. This is about a mile after. Look at all the debris piled up here. The waves just moved right over this, 10, 30-foot storm surge and piled debris about a mile inland. Just unbelievable damage from this event. That was also on the Gulf Coast. I believe that's New Orleans. Somebody drove their Chevy to the levee. <laughs> and these, these shots we saw over and over again. Just phenomenal damage. So the third most intense U.S. landfall at 918 millibars, the worst natural disaster we've seen, and over a 1,000 fatalities from this event. 
Okay, we'll go to some hot weather uh, for a change. 2006, really the entire year was a hot year across much of the country, but it was really the center part of the nation that got the, bore the brunt of the heat, and it was really the first part of the year that was so remarkable with this. These are the ranks for the last 112 years uh, for the hottest uh, or the, the warmest conditions in 112 years from January through June, the first six months of 2006. It was warm, and most of the nation was warm. There isn't one spot there near normal. It's all well above normal for temperatures. In addition to the hot weather, it was tremendously dry, and actually that sets up a feedback loop where if you've got dry soil, it's very easy to heat the air above that dry soil, and you just keep getting hot days. Your temperatures don't drop as low at night, and so this sets you up for a long-term uh, uh, heat wave. And you can see that pr these are deficits of precipitation from the long-term normal here. Uh, January, February, very dry, especially this part of the country. March, moistened a bit except on the east coast, dry again in April in the southwest, May, June. And so you start that feedback going where, okay, now we're into summer. Now it's really going to cook. So I'm going to go to my notes here because these are some of the records in June. It was the earliest triple-digit heat uh, in, this, in Nebraska, this part of the country, uh, early in June. And also 100 degrees, I think the first earliest 100-degree reading in, uh, in Denver. 100, 100 down in Houston doesn't sound too warm, but they, they have a lot of moisture down there usually, so it's hard to get hot temperatures there. Um, new daily max temperatures. Let's see. What else we got? 117 in, uh, in Redding, California. Oh, those are new daily maximums uh, for, the m for the entire month. And it was the warmest month of June on record in Las Vegas and Cheyenne. And Denver had 19 days uh, of the month when they were at least 90 degrees. So not, not something I want to see anytime soon. But I mean, didn't just continued into July and August. Um, let's see what do we got. All-time record high temperatures set or tied include 120 in Perkins County, South Dakota, 111 in Rapid City, uh, 119 Woodland Hills, California, 115 degrees in Stockton, 108 in Hillsborough, Oregon, and 105 in Douglas County, Wyoming. It was the warmest July on record in Fresno and also in, uh, in the, whole, the entire state of Wyoming had the warmest July on record. Tucson actually had, and all, well that's, okay, let's skip to that one, 23 days in a row, 90 or better in Montana. Tucson had a record high minimum temperature of 80 degrees. In other words, they'd never had a low temperature stay up that high at night. Um, and that's also a sign of a, a significant heat wave when you don't, don't cool down at night. And uh, for the all-time, for the entire month for the United States, uh, July was the warmest on record since the Dust Bowl days in 1936. And I think finally I got in here, well, these are other minimum temperatures that were all-time high minimum uh, temperatures. And Duluth, no, San Antonio, all-time warmest August. And finally, Duluth had a summer, and they probably liked this, the warmest summer on record with uh, average temperature of 67 degrees. Well, that's pretty nice. So out all, I'll, ta I'll take Duluth in the summer, you know. Um, it's hard to get pictures of a heat wave, but here we go. Some dry corn stalks, uh, kids getting some relief. Um, dried up creek beds, dried up lake beds. That picture taken by one of my coworkers, Rich Thompson, of Lake Thunderbird down in Norman, or what was left of it. So 2006, the second hottest year on record. 1998 is still uh, number one, and uh, the heat was everywhere. I don't want to see that again. All right, I don't want to see this again either. Greensburg, Kansas has to make the list at, in 2007, uh, coming in as a uh, memorable and devastating event uh, for that, that small town. 
the upper level setup here, there's a deep trough in the western U.S. And this setup's really kind of interesting because similar to what we were just discussing with the drought in terms of feedback, uh, you establish this high amplitude flow in the atmosphere and it doesn't change very much. And what it allows the atmosphere to do is pump tremendous amount of moisture into the plains while disturbances come out of the trough in the west and, and feed on that moisture and, and, and produce thunderstorms day in, day out. And very strong flow contributed to this event. Uh, this is the evolution over about an 18-hour period here, showing the upper system come out and initiate storm activity in the hot, unstable air across Oklahoma and Kansas and the mesoscale convective complex up into uh, uh, Nebraska and Iowa later that night into the next day. I'm going to freeze this here. This is about go time in the, in the Oklahoma panhandle. Um, and what's really interesting about this event, this initial activity, which was very intense, and I'll show a video of the tornadoes from it in a minute, died out. And then there was redevelopment in southwest Kansas, and we'll show the loop that Mike, Mike Umscheid has done. This is a video that uh, Reed wow. Kimmer came up. This is Ellis County. Turn off the one, two, one first. Ellis County, on Oklahoma, the on the afternoon of Don't get in an accident. prior to Greensburg. This is one of the most remarkable tornado videos I've ever seen. He told me to tell everybody he's not that much of a spaz. Watch the motion down here. Now I want you to think about something too. This is what, 50, 75 yards wide. Think about what happened about three or four hours later in Greensburg. Multiply this by 50 and imagine what that would have been like. I don't know how the atmosphere does that. I guess that's why I'm in the business, because it fascinates me. And I don't know what's going on when the atmosphere can do something like that, and then a few hours later develop something 50 times that intensity and move it through a town. Now, luckily, this was an open country. But just imagine this thing 50 times the size. That's just crazy. And we don't understand a lot about the size and the width and, and duration of tornadoes, and that's why we've got programs like Vortex. Just unbelievable motion in the in the base of that. And then when he pans away, you can see the entire supercell here. No, pan away. Hear that? Oh no, those are structures. Oh no. I don't know what he's looking no. at. I see a tree. Wow. You've got some brush to clear. Can you hear that? I can watch that over and over and see something new every time. There's, and as he pans out here, you'll see the, actually the no, entire no. supercell structure of this thing, a big swirl above it, only for a moment here, right, right there. It's condensation. The air is being uh, lifted so rapidly that you're con condensing. This is Mike Umscheid's radar loop of the event and, and the tracks that the tornadoes took. You can see they kind of skipped here. And again, that one we just saw was down in Ellis County many, many hours before these storms went up. And, uh, and these, the, the, the monster that hit uh, Greensburg was just a completely different animal altogether. Here is the tornado 
this ring of high reflectivity has just moved through Greensburg, and uh, you just don't want to see that on, on radar. Mile, little over, mile and a third, mile and a half in diameter. Was that four or four? Yeah. Here's before from Google Earth, Greensburg, Kansas. Here's after. Just amazing. So we have to put this one as uh, in one of the unfortunate memories. They are bouncing back. Um, if you've ever uh, got a chance to, to hear uh, Judge Ann Dixon from Greensburg talk about her experiences of going through this tornado and having her house destroyed as she was in the basement, uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, experience. Um, presidential uh, view, the high school there, uh, the water tower, just gone. So this is the first EF5 rated tornado. Um, we've been using the EF scale since 2003, I believe, and uh, so this is the first EF5 uh, rated. There have been other fives, and the last uh, F5 tornado was eight years earlier in Moore, Oklahoma. And the event went on. It was beyond Greensburg. The next day was also very busy, and there was massive flooding. Okay, we're up to 2008. More tornadoes. This is the Super Tuesday outbreak. I think it might have been mentioned earlier. This happened in early February. Very unusual time of year, especially in the Midwest, to see tornado activity. Uh, however, the atmosphere sometimes puts itself uh, ahead of schedule with respect to the season. It doesn't pay attention to the calendar. And this is what we call uh, in meteorology a synoptically evident event. We knew several days out that the uh, ingredients were coming together for a very substantial tornado outbreak. Unfortunately, it turned out to be the case. And these are some of the maps I put together for what we call composite charts for this event. This spans 18 hours from the noontime on the 5th through uh, 6 a.m. On, on the 6th of February. And the reason it's called Super Tuesday is this is when the primary elections were going on for the presidential election. So that was that evening. And I remember tuning in to CNN that evening and having to watch Wolf Blitzer. I don't know how that guy has a job, but um, <laughs> honestly. So he's droning on about the politics and the elections, and I'm no, I know there's a major severe weather outbreak underway. Nothing mentioned until finally they went to a, web, uh, a, a tower cam in um, Nashville, and there was a tornado on the ground that came right up to the outskirts of Nashville and then dissipated. The supercell associated with that tornado right across the middle of the city, a new tornado formed on the other side of Nashville, went on to kill 22 people between 10 and 10 p.m. and midnight that night. These storms were moving at 50, 60 miles an hour, and they were coming in, in the darkness of night. And one of the most dangerous situations you can have. And uh, it's hard to see on the chart here, but at this time, which is, th oh, this, is um, this would be 6 p.m., and this is the strong low-level winds here, and then the very strong upper-level winds, strong shear, moisture in place, the little stars, are all tornadic supercells, at least three, possibly four on the ground uh, at that time. And then even up to midnight, there's still killer tornadoes on the ground at midnight. Uh, finally, the system lifts up, and there's severe weather in Alabama before daybreak with two killer tornadoes there. So here's the evolution on radar. Uh, had this line, uh, looked similar to the no November event we looked at earlier, but it's these cells just ahead of the line that had the, the tornadoes, and then the line, there's some embedded tornadoes as well. Um, this was an event that I hope not to see again in my career. This was just a very bad night across that part of the country. Some of the uh, killer tornado events here, they started early, 5 or 6 p.m. back in Arkansas and western Tennessee, and then we went on into the evening hours between 7 and 8 p.m. A killer tornado killed three up here in Kentucky. By 10 p.m., 
this was the one that went out, just, just lifted outside Nashville, then touched down again. Unfortunately, 22 fatalities with that EF3. And then 2 a.m. in the morning, thunder. No. Um, <laughs> EF3 in Kentucky with four fatalities there. And then uh, between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., uh, five more fatalities in northern Alabama. So all 57 fatalities, the deadliest tornado outbreak in over two decades. And hopefully, like I said, I, I don't want to see something like this again uh, in my career. Some of the damage shots. This is uh, near Memphis. This is uh, near Nashville. Look at the slab. You can see the slab here. This house is basically just twisted right off the slab. And Alabama damage here. I'd only been in this job about two weeks, <laughs> and it was baptism by fire, um, answering the media uh, inquiries to this event, and uh, it, was, it was very tiring and sad, too. Okay, we're in the last year of the decade, 2009. Not 2010, although this did just happen in 2010, but the Red River flooding of the North is, uh, is pretty remarkable when you look at it from a, a long-term perspective. Prior to 1990, they had roughly, uh, all the way back between 1900 and 1990, they had about nine floods, which makes sense. You would consider 10-year floods, okay? So every 10 years, you get a flood. Um, since 1990, it seems like almost every year, they've had, this is the third or fourth year in a row, if you count this year, that they've had massive flooding on the Red River of the North. Why? Why all of a sudden, all of these, you know, springtime widespread flooding events, the river's been there all this time, um, and occasionally it does flood in the spring, but now it seems to be an annual event. There's something going on up there. Well, part of the problem is, and it, this hasn't changed, but the river is an amazingly uh, perfect river for springtime flooding. If it flows to the north into the frozen tundra of Winnipeg, um, and it has a very, very shallow grade. It drop, the river drops, what, one and a half feet of elevation for every mile. So it's a very, very subtle slope to this river. And you start melting the snowpack down here, and it has nowhere to go but a frozen lake up in Winnipeg. So what happens, it just backs up and floods. And here's the bigger picture of where the river is with respect to Winnipeg. And then we're going to look mostly at uh, Grand Forks State, I think, uh, for this event in uh, last year. The other problem is, leading up to this, win this past uh, winter, the uh, soil moisture uh, was very high, it's saturated soils on the ground across the northern Plains states, and that's due to the fact that October and December of 2008 had record precipitation amounts across the Dakotas and even here in Nebraska, the one of the wettest years on record uh, as far as the October to December period. And then that continued in the winter months, but what's happening in the winter? It's falling as snow. So now you've got four to six inches of liquid water in the snowpack on top of a saturated soil, and that's got nowhere to go other than up. And so then you warm up. You see this loop down here is the snow, and where you see orange and red, that's where it's melting. Um, and you see it's not melting up here, but it's all that liquid's flowing in that direction. These are the daily temperature records, and the, the red line there being the freezing line. So about mid-March, the temperatures went above freezing in Fargo, and they didn't even really go below freezing that often, even at night. So you're melting a tremendous amount of, uh, of snowpack up there, and the result is record flooding. And what's remarkable about the gauge report here is they went to a new, established a new record in 2009 of almost 41 feet. Look where flood stage is. If you follow this graph, there's 33. Flood stage is way, it's down here, it's 18 feet. So they are way up over flood stage, and there's a look at what it, what it looks like in uh, 
a time-lapse image there. And then at the bottom, two images here, the satellite images sort of before the, the, uh, the melting started and then after. And the entire river basin expands dramatically. Sandbagging efforts across the area were definitely heroic. Um, and they did help keep the floodwaters out of some areas. Um, this is no man's an island. Well, that guy's house is. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, it, 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 they did it again this year, although the crest this year, if we go back to the graph real quick here, just, uh, I think the crest this year was, yeah, it was well below what we had in 2009. There it is. I think it was down in, down in here, 33 maybe. So not quite in comparison to some of these other crests. But it seems like a recurring event, and it is a very interesting uh, that, that they're coming as often as they are. Um, it, they did get a blizzard, actually, in the wake of this one. They got back into colder weather in April, and that just added misery to the fact that some people were out of their homes, and now they're in floodwaters. So they rise again, and they seem to be rising every year. Over 300 injuries. A lot of money is spent trying to keep places that were formerly not flooded all that often from flooding every year. So there you have it. There's the 10 events of the decade. And uh, it was a pleasure doing these. I've got one more slide to show you the, the review here of the dramatic weather over the past 10 years. And luckily, if I'm lucky, I'll be around to do so another 10. Let me run over there with the microphone. So I will make it very much. Thank no you Nebraska. For me. I apologize. But consider yourselves lucky you're not in a talk like this. Nebraska is pretty weather savvy. And I think there are significant, many significant events have occurred in the state. But because of the, the, the mitigation and because of the attention to uh, uh, and knowledge about severe weather, and uh, people know what to do uh, when it happens. And so you don't necessarily rise to the level of attention that some of these other events uh, have, have done. But uh, that doesn't mean there isn't crazy weather here. I know there is. And uh, you know, but you don't want to be in a talk like this, probably. A quick question. You mentioned matching DNA of hurricanes. Yeah. How, how did they do that? Like no, charts, it was photos? Yeah, it was just, I was no, just, he, just he was just kidding. But there was a, that was a big debate uh, of whether that storm was associated with the original circulation. And, uh, and the other quote Max Mayfield had about that season and the one before is, this is these are things we'll be telling our grandchildren about. There's a question back here. I saw a hand. Get to you. Thank you, thank you. We appreciate you using the mic because we are recording. Thank you. Uh, this was back to your solar storm. Uh, I think it was called a Carrington event or something like that in the 1850s uh, when they first Carrington saw one of the first uh, solar flares and it was so big it blew out telegraph uh, cables yeah. and that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. have any we had anything that powerful since? And yeah. And uh, what does it do to the weather? Well, the, the, we have had uh, events, I believe it was in the 90s, the late 90s, there was uh, a coronal mass ejection or flare, X-flare, <laughs> that uh, took out the power grid across parts of uh, southeast Canada and the northeast uh, U.S. So that we know about. Uh, the other problem I didn't mention is GPS satellites can be taken out too. And we rely more and more on GPS satellites every day for things like aviation and you know tracking and the military uses them. And so... There's actually a it's a top secret room up here at the Omaha Offutt base where all they do is look at the sun because they want to know if a satellite goes out, is it something the sun did or something our enemies did? And uh, so it's an interesting aspect of, of science. Now, as far as the weather connection, 
there have been a lot of attempts to explain weather patterns from solar cycles. Now, we know that the sun has a tremendous impact on day-to-day -day weather, uh, just the heating, cooling cycle and the seasons. Uh, but as far as these electrical charges and, and the sunspot cycle, I'm not aware of any true you know, connection. I know that there have been some, the, the Maunder minimum was one where they thought maybe cooler than normal weather because of the lack of sunspots. Um, the one problem we have with these high-resolution satellites is they only go back into the early, late 70s, so we have a very limited record of data from the sun. Any more questions? Right here. I can repeat it. The question was, how does the tornado uh, become as strong and, and, and go from a relatively weak F1 rating to an EF5? Well, the rating scale, first of all, is not based on the intensity necessarily. It's an indirect uh, reference to intensity. That uh, Tornado ratings are, unfortunately, based on damage uh, that's inflicted by the tornado. Uh, you can have an incredibly intense tornado in open country not be rated very high because it doesn't strike a house or a building where you can kind of come up with an estimate of the wind speed. So we kind of do reverse engineering there, look at what damage has occurred, and decide, well, this, the, the wind speeds to create that type of damage uh, fit within this category, EF3, EF4. Um, the intensity question is one that's a puzzling one. Uh, there's a relationship to uh, wind shear in the atmosphere. The stronger the wind shear uh, in the right combination of ingredients, the, the, the more intense the tornado. What's fascinating about tornadic thunderstorms is, well, one, they're extremely rare if you, you know, look at the entire planet. We, we happen to be in an area where they occur more often than a lot of other places, but they still are remarkably sensitive to small changes in the atmosphere. You change one or two ingredients of the atmosphere in terms of moisture or heat or wind, and you have a rain shower. You add just the right amount of ingredients and you've got a large wedge tornado. And it is amazing and fascinating to watch how these things form and how they are so sensitive to the environment, but sometimes they'll get to the point where it doesn't matter. They're on their own now. Now they're creating their own system of weather. And, and all of those interactions we do not understand very well, um, but it is amazing to watch. And so the answer is we don't know <laughs> how that goes. Know a little bit about it, but not Now you're talking about uh, in terms of EMI, uh, electromagnetic inter. The the Greg, kind of repeat the question. Yeah, yeah. The question was, our electrical grid has gotten to the point where there's a tremendous amount of excess energy, I guess, getting getting uh, radiated into the atmosphere, and if there are any effects from that. I'm unaware of anything that would suggest that's the case. Uh, I haven't seen any, any formal studies uh, uh, suggesting that. Um, we do know, you know, there have there, there been studies with respect to health effects of living near high voltage, and, um, but as far as the atmosphere goes, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of anything like that. 
before we go to one more question, I just want to at least note the balcony is filled, downstairs is filled, or we do have some seats up front for those of you in the back. Is Milo Mumgard here or any of the proclamations here? Come on on down. We want to get into the proclamation phase in just a moment, and then we're going to turn it over to Scott, who's going to talk about that very timely issue of what do you do when you're in a car and you encounter a tornado? Do you head to the ditch or do you stay in the car? Before we go, we'll take one more question. Is there someone out there who has another question? Uh, Greg, who's here? Any other hands coming up? Nope, nope. Up there? Way up there. Can you be real loud and then we'll repeat it? Or is there it's just people up there waving hi? Well, thank you, you again for having Please me. Please, oh, one more question okay. back there. Yes. Ah, that's a good that's one. That's a good one. <laughs> he wants to know he about a prediction the of the prediction this of the season to come. Season. Um, officially, no. Uh, but we know we're in an El Nino. Uh, the El Nino is the warmer Pacific uh, waters near the equator. Uh, we've been in an El Nino, uh, pretty moderate uh, to strong El Nino since last uh, winter, uh, the beginning of the uh, winter last year. And what we see from El Nino is a ac very active storm track across the southern United States and in the central United States. El Nino probably contributed to the large number of snowstorms we saw, probably contributed to the large uh, above normal precipitation we saw in the plains and in the east this past winter. There are indications that sometimes, because you've got that active storm track, in the south, in the winter, on the Gulf Coast in Florida, you can have above normal tornado activity associated with that. But it can also act as a suppressing factor as you move into springtime. Although there have been some El Ninos where spring has seen a lot of severe weather, there are probably more El Ninos that we're aware of in the past where there was less severe weather. Um, but if you look at the correlation, uh, if you look at it in a scientifically rigorous way, it's very difficult to make a prediction based on El Nino, especially as we move into May. The correlations really don't exist on a national scale moving into the, the springtime month. La Nina, on the other hand, shows some signs, and we were in a La Nina in 2008, in February 2008. Uh, La Nina in the winter into springtime seems to, and that La Nina, I should say, is when the, the, the waters in the Pacific are cooler than the long-term average, and uh, it seems to suggest that we might see more severe weather activity uh, during a La Nina phase of the, uh, that oscillation that occurs. So for this year, things can change really quick as we move into April and May. Uh, I was quoted a few weeks ago in an AP article saying, it's spring, we will see an increase in severe weather. That happens, that's climatology. I'm not telling you much there. Unfortunately, they also plug El Nino as being the cause, right. and it had nothing to do with that. It's just spring. Greg, this could get you a little more excited. Look at this down here. It's trying to get developed. We're yeah. in a little dry slot right in here. All the precipitation's moved off it's to the very west. Don't it's know a when deep it's gonna get cyclone here. down in Oklahoma yeah. today. I got to so go fly into it. We're we're quite fortunate.